This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm your host, Dahlia Gabriel, and with me tonight is Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, It's a grim news cycle, but also, I don't know if you know this about me, Dahlia, I hate trick-or-treating, and (laughs) kids keep knocking on my door, asking me for chocolate, which I think is very, very rude because I don't have children and my tax money goes towards their education. They should be bringing me chocolate, but they're not. They're asking me for chocolate. Um, and I don't even have a pumpkin outside of my house. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm miffed. <laughs> it's a very spooky day. Fucking bloody, you know, wanting, like, wanting handouts. We don't do that here in Britain. Anyway. Coming up later tonight, Keir Starmer has made a speech today doubling down on his refusal to back a ceasefire in Gaza. Dominic Cummings has appeared before the COVID inquiry, revealing more details about government decision-making early in the pandemic. And we've got a rare good news story about British Railways to end our show. Stay tuned for all of that. So on to our first story. Just a few hours ago, Israel bombed the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. This footage shows what's left of the camp after Gaza's civil defence ministry reported that it had been, quote, completely destroyed by bombardment this afternoon. At least 50 people are reported to have been killed and dozens have been injured. The camp is located in the north of the Gaza city. Those who were injured have been taken to the nearby Indonesian hospital. Its director has said the hospital will, quote, stop working completely tomorrow evening due to fuel shortages. The latest atrocity has taken place in the context of Israeli troops making further progress into Gaza as part of a ground offensive. Both Israel and Hamas have reported fierce fighting in the north of the Strip. This footage from the IDF purports to show Israeli forces deep within the Gaza Strip. It says that troops hit Hamas positions and anti-tank missile squads, killing, quote, dozens of Hamas fighters. Tanks have also reportedly been closing in on Gaza City. This map from the New York Times shows where Israeli troops have so far crossed the border into Gaza from the east. Israel appears to be trying to close off two main roads running from northern Gaza to the south, one along the coast, the other through the centre of Gaza City. Meanwhile, from the north, tanks are pressing further into the territory. It looks like an attempt to sever northern Gaza from the south, perhaps only temporarily, but also perhaps not temporarily because left-wing Israeli magazine Plus 972 has published an English translation of a policy paper distributed to the Israeli government by the country's intelligence ministry. Written just days after the October 7th Hamas attack on Israeli civilians, it proposes three options for dealing with the civilian population of Gaza. The third option, option C, calls for the evacuation of the entire civilian population into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Here's how the document describes the operational aspects of that option. Number one, a call for the evacuation of the non-combatant population from the combat zone of the Hamas attack. Two, in the first stage, operations from the air with a focus on the north of Gaza to allow a ground invasion in an area that is already evacuated and does not require fighting in a densely populated civilian area. 
In the second stage, a gradual ground invasion of the territory in the north and along the border until the occupation of the entire strip and cleansing of the underground bunkers of Hamas fighters. Number four, the ground invasion stage will be less time consuming compared to options A and B and therefore will reduce the exposure time to opening the northern front simultaneously with the fighting in Gaza. Number five, it is important to leave the travel routes to the south open to enable the evacuation of the civilian population toward Rafah. So we should point out that the intelligence ministry conducts research, but it doesn't set policy. Benjamin Netanyahu's government has described the proposal as merely a hypothetical exercise and a, quote, concept paper. The paper also dismisses two other proposed options, importing a Palestinian Authority government into Gaza from the West Bank or supporting a local Gazan government. Ash, what does this memo tell us about how Israel sees its endgame in Gaza? I think that since... The Oslo Accords and the failure of Israel to implement or uphold the Oslo Accords, what we've known is that the end game for Gaza, ideally for Israelis, would look like some kind of depopulation. Because you can't indefinitely hold a population of 2.2 million and growing under the conditions of a blockade and also expect tight security. That's simply an unreasonable policy expectation. You would either have to loosen the restrictions on Gaza or start moving the civilian population towards the south because, of course, Israel would not countenance allowing Palestinians to return to the lands that many of their ancestors were expelled from between 1948 and after 1967 as well. So I think that this um, research paper produced by the Israeli intelligence services, it certainly speaks to a vein of thinking which has been prevalent within the Israeli state for quite some time. An idea that after a certain security pretext, you'll be able to have air, um, aerial bombardment followed up by a ground invasion where one you you significantly uh, reduce, if not eliminate, Hamas's fighting capacity. And two, you render huge tracts of the Gaza Strip. And I'm using the word huge quite wrongly. Of course, the Gaza Strip is very small. But you, you render a lot of the Gaza Strip uninhabitable for civilians, which will force people southwards. Now, as to whether or not Netanyahu will be able to carry this out, I think the really key thing here is how long will he be able to continue this ground invasion backed up by airstrikes until the US forces a so-called humanitarian pause or an eventual ceasefire. And that's the bit which is up in the air. Of course, the US and the UK have ruled out a ceasefire, at least for now. They argue somewhat ridiculously that to stop killing people now would lead to more violence further down the line. I mean, good thing there's no violence going on now, huh? Um, but I think that Netanyahu found his hand being forced in terms of tri triggering the ground invasion when he did because the mood amongst his international allies was beginning to sour a bit and secondly he was holding the wishes of the army and his far-right cabinet at bay so I think that in terms of what what the mainstream in Israel in Israeli politics is at the moment 
the mainstream in Israeli politics is not upholding the two-state solution. That is a complete fantasy. The mainstream in Israeli politics is various forms of depopulation and annexation. Now, as to whether they'll be able to successfully relocate, i.e. ethnically cleanse, forcibly transfer enough civilians from the north of Gaza southwards, that also depends on how negotiations with Egypt end up going. There is an extension of border infrastructure being built into Egypt at the moment. Um, There hasn't been a negotiation agreed to allow vast numbers of Palestinian civilians to settle there. But I think that that would be something like the ideal in Israel's mind. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary of the situation. And is of course, why the call has been for a ceasefire and not for the opening up of humanitarian corridors into Egypt, into Sinai, because it's that's a very it, it bears very eerie resemblance to what happened during the Nakba, which was this idea of, oh, you know, temporarily you need to leave so that we can just kind of wrap this war up and then you'll be allowed to come back. And obviously, um, for decades, the Palestinians who were displaced during that process have never been able to return. And that's why, you know, within the amongst Arab populations, um, I'm not talking about the leadership here, but amongst Arab populations, there is resistance to that because you don't want to be seen as being complicit in a second Nakba. So that's very important um, context. So the situation in Gaza is rapidly deteriorating. Over 8,500 Palestinians have now been killed, more than 3,400 of them children, according to UNICEF, and 800,000 people have now been displaced within the territory. It's a disaster and it may be spreading. That's because the situation is also becoming dire in the occupied West Bank. Settler violence against Palestinians has risen rapidly in the territory since the 7th of October. According to the New York Times, at least 115 Palestinians have been killed by settlers or the IDF in the region since the war began. The UN says that among the dead are 33 children. Additionally, more than 2,000 Palestinians in the West Bank have been injured and 1,000 have been forcibly displaced from their homes. In the days following the 7th of October attacks, Israel's defense minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, announced that his department would be handing out 10,000 rifles, specifying that at least some were intended to arm West Bank settlers. 700,000 settlers are now living illegally in the West Bank, and a segment from Channel 4 News gave an insight into what that means for Palestinians living there. They spoke with a Palestinian family whose home has been under threat. For so long, this conflict has been about land, this parched land, and who has the right to call it home? The occupied West Bank should be the core of an independent Palestinian state, but it's become a troubled archipelago of warring communities, Palestinian villages and towns side by side with illegal Israeli settlements. These signs are everywhere. But the greater menace is posed by the Israeli settlers and the army that protects only them. Case in point, we came across these soldiers this morning dealing with a small demonstration. One of the shots that rang out killed a Palestinian youth. What they're demonstrating against and what we've come to see is the alarming rise in evictions since October the 7th. In the village of Susia, the playground is inhabited only by ghosts. The Palestinian villagers are afraid to stay out in the open 
in case the settlers take pot shots. So this is your olive oil? Yeah, yeah, olive oil. Also, this is our zaatar. Oh, zaatar, I our... love the zaatar. Yeah, yeah. Nasser yeah. invites me into his kitchen. His wife, Sarah, has baked mm -hmm. fresh bread. The hospitality here is impeccable. And the threats from the Israeli settlers, who live less than a kilometer away, are unmistakable. What, what, reason, what reason did the settlers give you, or the army, for leaving? What did they say? <laughs> Nothing. Just come in and say 24 hours. Living or we kill you. Are you going to leave? No, no. We we resistant, we stay stay. You stay, stay here? Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the reasons they're not leaving is that they've already had to do so once before when his father was thrown out of the village where he was born. But the, the reason outside NASA shows me another trick the settlers get up to. Yeah. You see? Oh yes. So the settlers cut the electricity yeah, 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 in the into night. the village. Yeah, in, in, in the village, Chabalbotom, yeah. As you can see, the main access from the road to the village has been blocked by these boulders, which have been moved here by the settlers in the middle of the night, just as they block the local well for the village and they cut the electricity wise. They do everything they can to render life in these villages unlivable. Pure intimidation. Illegal under international law, but happening. A rare insight into what happens in Palestine during, even in areas that are under so-called peace peacetime. Um, so good on Channel 4 for broadcasting that. So in that segment, Channel 4 also spoke to a second Palestinian in the West Bank. Ten minutes drive away, the village of Zanuta a hive of DIY activity. But here they're not building, they're dismantling. Packing up to leave for good. In Zanuta, the threat has worked. We're going to another uh, area. It's nearby a checkpoint and Ramadan area. It's also area C. But do they have a house there? Nothing. Only like a field. A field. So how will they live? God help us. And how long have they been here in this place? I'm sorry. He said it in the beginning, generations. He don't know. The main reason why the houses here are so flimsy is that the Palestinian villagers never get the permission from the Israeli authorities to build anything more solid, more permanent. And on this door, we find a bitter irony. So it says here, humanitarian support to Palestinians at risk of forcible transfer in the West Bank. And at least a dozen sponsors, uh, including the UK. And guess what? That's exactly what's happening. Forcible transfer of people. Like an insult to those packing up their homes and dismantling their dwellings, straddling the hill next door, the most solid building for miles, the headquarters of the Israeli settler authority in this part of the West Bank. Do you have any rights here? We don't have any rights because it's the, the, the ones that are responsible for our life, the judge that we are asking them, for example, a permission to build a school, a permission to build a home, are the settlers that are aiming to take us away from here. As he helps to roll up the family carpets in the house that used to be his, in the village that he grew up calling home, Nassim may be too young to understand, 
but he will never forget. I think it's incredibly difficult to overstate and something that I've realized through my conversations with people over the past few weeks that the concept of what it means to not have self-determination, to not have a state in today's world is so dire and is essentially expulsion from human status, you know, to be unable to build a home that you can reliably live on in for years, to be unable to build basic infrastructure, to not get the planning rights to build basic infrastructure and housing. And when you do build it, to have it destroyed is so deep. And I think it's really unfathomable. You know, the way that a lot of people talk about what's happening is as if this is two states having a conflict when it's like, no, one, this is the whole point. And to be stateless is to render such a deep sense of unfreedom that I think it is literally unimaginable, not computable by the vast majority of us living in the West. What are the implications of this, you know, this, this escalation of what was already a very difficult situation with this, you know, the arming of, of settlers in, in the West Bank? What are the implications of that for the Palestinians trying to, to make a life there? I mean, I just want to pick up on the point you made, Dahlia, about statelessness. So when you look at the maps of Palestinian territories, you've got vast amounts of Israel in one color, and you've got the sort of, you know, increasingly gobbled up bits of the West Bank in another. And I think because of the way in which it's discussed in the media, it's easy to think about those little nuggets of Palestinian state existing, you know, roughly like any other state. You know, you've got, um, you know, a leader, you've got, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, you've got the Palestinian Authority. But what that doesn't tell you is all of the ways in which sovereignty and self-determination is basically non-existent in the occupied West Bank. So it was mentioned in that Channel 4 VT that in order to get permission to build on their own land, Palestinians have to appeal to the Settlers Authority. Now, the Settlers Authority was set up in order to displace Palestinians and replace them with settlers. So you're appealing to an authority that wants to forcibly transfer you, that wants to ethnically cleanse you and saying, can I build a home? Can we have a school? Can we keep the school that we've already got? And you're appealing to an institution which is designed to get rid of you. And so that's why these protest movements, which erupt around certain villages, for instance, the one which was just basically designated a firing squad by the Israeli armed forces. What you don't know is that leading up to that is an entirely arbitrary process where every system of law, every system, every system of decision making that you appeal to has been set up in order to get rid of you. Another way in which Palestinians are denied the most basic access to law, to justice, and to sovereignty. If a settler kills, enacts violence against, damages the property of a Palestinian, it's not the Palestinian Authority who arrests them, indicts them, brings them to justice. Oh no, the Palestinian police are expressly prohibited from arresting charging, uh, bringing to trial any Israeli citizen, even if they're an illegal settler. So 
it's entirely in the hands of the Israeli state to decide whether or not one of their citizens has committed a crime against what they deem to be a non-citizen i.e. a Palestinian. Now, of course, they're not really a non-citizen. If you're a Palestinian in the occupied West Bank, you are subject to Israeli law in all sorts of ways, except you don't get the protection of the law. And so what that means is that according to a UN report from over a decade ago now, so it's probably gotten worse, 90% of settlers who commit acts of violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank never receive an indictment. So some of that really disturbing footage that we've seen recently of settlers shooting unarmed Palestinians under the watchful gaze of the IDF, the vast majority of them do so with full impunity. They will not be arrested. They will not be charged. They will not be indicted. It is a state set up only to protect one kind of citizen and to leave the other class of citizen wholly unprotected. And this is the the sinister dishonesty at the heart of, you know, it's not really a a two-state solution because Israel doesn't even recognize the Palestinian state, but the get-out clause that Israel has, because it only recognizes Israeli sovereignty between the river and the sea. That's me quoting from Likud's charter there. Um, And yet, when it comes to the protection of Palestinian citizens, well, they're the business of the Palestinian Authority. It's nothing to do with us, except Israeli citizens aren't held to any of the international standards that anyone else would be if they'd committed a crime under an authority's jurisdiction. If I went to France and I shot and I killed someone, they wouldn't go, oh, well, actually, sorry, it's only the UK government that can arrest her and try her. No, I would be arrested and tried in France for a crime committed against one of their citizens because that's where I did the crime. Whereas settlers enjoy this privileged in-between status. They're Israeli citizens when it comes to the protection of the state, Palestinians are non-citizens, but also don't get the protection of a Palestinian state because that's not recognized. And that is a process which I think is going to get worse. So one of the things that the October 7th attacks did is that it kicked into gear an Israeli war machine, which isn't just about the arms of the state. So of course, we're seeing the activities of the IDF in Gaza. We're also seeing some activities of the IDF in the West Bank as well. For instance, airstrikes on Janine, uh, the bulldozing of the shrine to Shireen Abu Akleh. But settler violence is directly backed by the state. You have Itmar Ben-Gavir handing out uh, rifles. You have the enlargement and expansion of settlements having been Israeli government policy for very many years now. So when you see an escalation of settler violence, it's tempting, of course, to call it terrorism because, you know, the the effects on civilian lives, the, the deliberate targeting of civilians, that's got everything in common with what we'd normally call terrorism. But this is this is an extension of the Israeli state. You cannot separate it from the activities of the IDF in Gaza. So where you see an escalation of hostilities in Gaza, which we are right now, unparalleled 
violence in terms of what what Gaza has been subject to before. You will also see an escalation of violence in the West Bank, unfortunately. And this is exactly what um, we have given carte blanche to. Because when people talk about Israel's right to defend itself, what they are turning a blind eye to is what is being done in order to expand Israeli territory in the West Bank. And it always accelerates in times of bombardment on Gaza. Yeah, and I think it's just so important. Obviously, all eyes are on the region now because of this unprecedented escalation, as you pointed out there, Ash. But this context, this kind of up, you know, under this creating this kind of deep understanding of what life is like even during so-called normal times is so crucially important and is religiously avoided by the mainstream press. And that's kind of why we have such a poor literacy in this country of, you know, what the actual context is, which we have to have because, you know, we need to have that literacy because our government is so intertwined with that, with that violence, with that ongoing kind of normal, normal time violence. Um, and yet, you know, despite people not knowing that context, they still can see what that what's happening now is wrong. And that's why so many people are taking to the streets. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, there's that lack of like political understanding, but there's still a human understanding that kind of cuts through. Aside from the terrible loss of life and devastation to an already traumatized Palestinian population, the siege and bombardment of Gaza threatens to destabilize much of the Middle East. Israel has already been exchanging fire with Hezbollah across its border with Lebanon, leading to the evacuation of civilians on both sides. According to Amnesty International, some of that fire may have broken international law. It says it has evidence showing that Israel has used white phosphorus in its cross-border hostilities in southern Lebanon. Amnesty says that one such attack was indiscriminate, hitting a town in Lebanon where nine civilians were injured and civilian infrastructure destroyed. They're calling for it to be investigated as a war crime. And there are further signs of the fighting spreading to the wider region. Israel today claims to have intercepted a surface-to-surface long-range ballistic missile attack fired by Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility for that attack, as well as two cruise missiles fired at Israel. It's the third missile attack from Yemen since the war began. The Houthis see themselves as part of the, quote, axis of resistance, which includes Hezbollah in Lebanon, as well as groups in Iraq and Syria. In a televised statement, a spokesperson for the Houthi military said attacks would continue until, quote, Israeli aggression stops. The Israeli military says no civilians were at risk from the attack. The risk of the conflict spreading to the wider region, as well as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, explains why most of the world has been calling for a ceasefire. So far, the US, the UK and the EU have not joined in with those calls. But even if they did, it doesn't seem likely that Israel would accept it. In a speech last night, Benjamin Netanyahu made his country's position clear. He said this. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of 7th of October. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorists, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war, a war for our common future. Ash, what do you make of that statement? I don't think it comes as any particular surprise. Benjamin Netanyahu will not call for a ceasefire, even with immense international pressure, while he's got the US and to a lesser extent the UK backing him. One, it's that he's been looking for this pretext for an awful long time. Um, as we've said, the idea of depopulating Gaza has been around for you know quite a while. Israel only recognizes its sovereignty between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. And the, you know, previous status of Gaza as this, you know, open air prison governed by Hamas, while it was useful for inhibiting the project of a viable Palestinian state, it was not one which was going to be viable from a security perspective for Israel for you know, an, an indefinite period of time. And then the second thing is to do with the domestic pressures on Benjamin Netanyahu. One of the things which doesn't get reported very much in British media, but is very much being reported in Israeli media, is the feeling amongst uh, families and loved ones of the hostages that they've just been abandoned. So much of this operation on Gaza has been justified in the name of, we need to get back the hostages. Now, the Negotiations that have been taking place in Qatar have had offers from Hamas in terms of releasing hostages. I'm not going to sit here and say, and every one of those offers was made in good faith. And if you only met the demands, then they would, of course, release all of them. But it seems in terms of the reporting, which has emerged from uh, from reputable outlets, one of the reasons why um, Israel did not want to accept the offer of Hamas to release hostages is because one, uh, one of the conditions was a prisoner exchange where women and children who are being indefinitely held in detention by the Israelis would be released. And two, another one of the demands being made by Hamas in return for the release of hostages was for fuel to be allowed into Gaza. Um, those hostages their lives are at risk because one, of course, many are still in Hamas captivity, and two, they're in Hamas captivity while Israeli bombs are raining down on them. Now, in terms of the hostages who were released, they were reporting uh, having been held very deep within the tunnel system in Gaza. Now, it's precisely that tunnel system that Israel says that it's targeting with its airstrikes and with its shelling doesn't take a genius to work out that this um, military action, which is supposedly being taken in the interests of Israeli civilian life, is, of course, endangering the lives of Israeli civilians. So for Netanyahu to call a ceasefire now, it would mean that all of that criticism, which is currently, you know, a second or a third order story compared to the military activity that's going on in Gaza, all of that stuff comes to the forefront. And he's left having to carry the can for his handling of the hostage situation in Gaza. The security breach that took place on October 7th, as well as ongoing opposition to his attempts to curtail the independence and the freedom of the judiciary. So it wouldn't make sense uh, from either an ideological or a sort of political calculation standpoint for Netanyahu to accept calls for a ceasefire, unless 
there was a sense that he would lose a significant amount of his US backing if he didn't negotiate one. It goes without saying that many families of the hostages have been protesting in Tel Aviv for a ceasefire precisely because their fears have gone from, you know, just worrying about their family members being hostages in, you know, in Hamas's captivity to saying, well, now I'm also worried that my family members are going to die from the fact that electricity, food, medical supplies, water, you know, telecommunications infrastructure is being cut off in in the region. So, you know, even if, even from that perspective, it just makes no sense that, that this is still remains the point of, you know, um, Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Right, on to our next story. As the death toll in Gaza reaches nearly 10,000, and as violence escalates in the broader region, pressure is mounting globally for a ceasefire. This includes within the Labour Party, where around 30 councillors have resigned over Keir Starmer's refusal to back the UN's call for a ceasefire. Despite that, Starmer chose to make a speech today, doubling down on his position. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now for two reasons. One, because a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies. And as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw on October the 7th. Attacks that are still ongoing. Hostages who should be released, still held. Hamas would be emboldened and start preparing for future violence immediately. So the point Starmer is trying to make is that calling for a ceasefire now would somehow leave intact enough infrastructure in Gaza for Hamas to carry out another attack against Israel. So basically, not enough infrastructural damage to Gaza has been done to make a ceasefire possible. Now, let's just remind ourselves of the state of Gaza's infrastructure right now, because satellite imagery shows the extent of the damage Israeli bombing has had. Airstrikes have destroyed 1 in 20 buildings in Gaza. At least 45% of housing units have been destroyed or damaged. 15 hospitals and 32 health centers are no longer in service. 38 schools have been destroyed or severely damaged, with nearly 200 more damaged to some extent. And that's before you even get to the fact that the Gazan population is being slowly starved of food, water and essential health resources by Israel's blockades. The vast majority of damage being done is to civilian, not military infrastructure. And Israel is being given the green light by US and British politicians to continue. So my question to Starmer is how much of Gaza's infrastructure has to be damaged before you deem it safe enough to call for a ceasefire? Will it only be safe enough when every single hospital, school, power plant, home, sanitation facility has been razed to the ground? Will it only be enough when life cannot meaningly continue for any human being in the Gaza Strip? When will it end? So Starmer can't call for a ceasefire. Instead, this is his proposed solution. Our current calls for pauses in the fighting for clear and specific humanitarian purposes and which must start immediately, is right in practice 
as well as principle. In fact, it is at this moment the only credible approach that has any chance of achieving what we all want to see in Gaza, the urgent alleviation of Palestinian suffering, aid distributed quickly, space to get hostages out. Calling for a humanitarian pause is basically how politicians are paying lip service to caring about Palestinian lives, while still holding the position that Israel has the right to continue its attack on Gaza with impunity. Because let's not forget, Starmer may have made general statements that international law must be upheld, but he's refusing to condemn actual violations of international law that are happening now. On the contrary, he's previously said that Israel should have the right to cut off water and food supplies to two million Gazans, which is a clear war crime. And he may have rode back on that now, saying he basically didn't understand the question that was being asked of him. But this speech shows that his fundamental position hasn't changed, that Israel should be allowed to do whatever it wants without serious and immediate accountability or intervention. And in that case, calling for a humanitarian pause is meaningless. It's basically just saying, you know, let's take a little break between war crimes. And that is a cop-out from a man who is likely going to be our next prime minister. So let's go back to more of the speech, because Kirstama also addressed the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And as you would expect, he reiterated the official position of the British government. The Palestinian people need to know there is a genuine will and determination from Israel, from Arab states, from the West, to finally address their plight in deeds as well as words. Because the Palestinian claim to statehood is not in the gift of a neighbor. It is inalienable right of the Palestinian people and the clear logic of any call for a two-state solution. So my Labour Party will fight for that cause. We will work with international partners towards the recognition of a Palestinian state as part of a negotiated, just and lasting peace. So Keir Starmer there stating that Labour will advocate for a two-state solution and arguing that Palestinian statehood is an inalienable right. Now, Just imagine a Palestinian hearing Keir Starmer saying that Israel, the West and Arab states have a genuine will and determination to realize that inalienable right. So serious diplomatic efforts for a two-state solution have been going on for decades. And every time an agreement has been made on the borders and principles of Palestinian statehood, that agreement has been violated by Israel without any consequence. And if anything, indiscriminate support has only strengthened. So the top-down building of settlements into Palestinian territory, the blockades and controls on the West Bank and Gaza have made a two-state solution practically non-viable. And it's international leaders like Starmer that have allowed it to get to this point. So why should Palestinians believe in or trust in that genuine will and determination, especially from someone who is still refusing to hold Israel to international legal standards. So on the question of those legal standards, Keir Starmer did probably offer his strongest condemnation yet. The right to self-defense is fundamental, but it's not a blank check. The supply of basic utilities like water, medicines, electricity, and yes, fuel to civilians in Gaza 
cannot be blocked by Israel. Every life matters. So every step must be taken to protect civilians from bombardment. Palestinians should not be forced to leave their homes en masse. But where they have no choice but to flee within Gaza, we need crystal clear guarantees that they will be able to return quickly. You cannot overstate the importance of this last point. In conflicts like this, the most painful blows are those that land on the bruises of history. And for Palestinians, the threat of displacement sends a shiver down the spine. It must be disavowed urgently, clearly, and by all. Now, again, there you have some verbal recognition of something Palestinians and the UN, by the way, have been saying for weeks now. Medicines and food should not be denied to a population during war. And that calls for Gazans to evacuate into Sinai bear a chilling resemblance to the 1947 Nakba, in which 700,000 civilians were displaced and never able to return. But despite that recognition, Starmer is still refusing to call for a ceasefire, even though that is the only practical way of ending the collective punishment and displacement Gazans are currently experiencing. Without that policy change, Starmer's words are just that, words. So it's worth mentioning that there is consensus in the UK for a ceasefire. A YouGov poll found 76% of UK adults back a ceasefire. And luckily, there is one party leader willing to actually reflect their electorate. SNP leader and First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef, tweeted this in response to Keir Starmer's speech. Keir Starmer's stance lacks moral courage and leadership. A humanitarian pause will only temporarily stop the killing of children. Over 3,000 have already reportedly been killed in Gaza. We need a ceasefire now, otherwise we are accepting thousands more civilians being killed. Yusuf, of course, has family currently trapped in Gaza, and whilst they are thankfully alive, still, he did confirm two days ago that they have run out of clean drinking water, as is the case for many Gazans. And the World Health Organization has warned of an imminent public health catastrophe as a result of Gaza's failing water infrastructure due to the risk of waterborne diseases and fatal dehydration. So, Ash, Sky's Beth Rigby tweeted today that Starmer can't break with Western consensus because he wants to be seen as a PM in waiting. And, you know, this is him speaking to the nation and for the nation. How do you think the British public are actually going to receive this? So I think it was friend of the show, James Butler, who tweeted, it's always instructive to see a political journalist give their sense of what the rules are. Because when Beth Rigby is describing a Western consensus, she's not talking about a consensus amongst Western populations. There is a vast majority of people in this country who think that either definitely or probably should be an immediate ceasefire. That's 76% of people. Only 3% of people in this country definitely think that there should not be a ceasefire. A ceasefire is immensely popular amongst the civilian, well, when I say civilian, I mean non-politician you know, non class in the United States as well, many other European countries. If you want to talk about Western consensus, maybe you could look at what other European countries are saying and doing in terms of calling for a ceasefire. Indeed, the Spanish government is saying that the International Criminal Court should be allowed access to investigate what's been going on in Israel and in Gaza. So by Western consensus, 
what Beth Rigby means is what America is doing, right? What the American government is saying, what's coming out of the White House. And in a way, you just sort of want her to say that. You're not talking about Western consensus. You're talking about what the White House is saying. And so we can follow along like the good little lapdogs we are, just like the early 2000s. Now, I had um, an interesting conversation with a Telegraph writer last week where he was sort of, you know, letting me in on how the right have been making sense of what Israel uh, has been saying and has been doing. And it was his view that what has been obvious to many of us for years, that Israel has absolutely no interest in a two-state solution, and indeed would rather give financial and uh, political support to Hamas in order to inhibit the project of a viable Palestinian state. That's been obvious to us for many years, but it's come as a genuine surprise to both Washington and to Westminster. So when Biden visited Israel shortly after the seventh uh, of October attacks. When Rishi Sunak visited Israel shortly after the seventh of October attacks, you saw a shift in the diplomatic messaging. So it went from Israel can do absolutely whatever it likes. It's got an inalienable right to self-defense. To Israel has an inalienable right to self-defense, but also um, international law and two-state solution. Everyone wants a two-state solution, don't you? <laughs> and. There's been, I think, a tendency amongst political elites in Washington and in Westminster to live in a kind of fantasy land. Two-state solution, working towards a recognized Palestinian entity was the agreement since Oslo. And of course, it's only those nasty Palestinians who don't want to recognize Israel and want to wipe Israel off the map who, who have been an obstacle in implementing a two-state solution. Now, actually, when you have to engage with what Israeli governments are doing and saying where the mainstream of Israeli politics is at, then you go, oh, shit, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, there is a de facto one-state solution, and it is an apartheid state. It's not a particularly democratic state, and it's a state which has absolutely no regard for international law. It is the state of Israel. So I think that's what accounts for this sort of return of the verbal tick of the two-state solution, because I genuinely think that there are many people in the UK and in America in political circles, who thought that the failure of a two-state process was simply down to Palestinian intransigence. They were remarkably complacent about how Israeli politics uh, was shifting. And I think that that has something to do with not wanting to recognize the realities of Israel, not wanting to recognize the realities of what European and American financing and political support has created. Yeah. And I mean, this is where, I mean, it feels so basic to say it, but where like the fundamental racism of, and the function that racism plays in this, because it is just this, like this fixed idea of Arabs as the bad guys. They're just the bad guys. It's civilization versus barbarians. And that is a, there's a, there's a kind of repertoire 
um, a reservoir of representation that has historically existed to support that. And so it's very easy to kind of fall into that as the basic assumptions. You would just expect that, you know, the people who like journalists and politicians who are directly responsible for narrating and actually making policy in this context would be able to kind of have a little bit more actual historical facts as opposed to just racist instinct. But the ability to to pursue that narrative, despite it going against so much of the concrete history, is rooted in this idea of, you know, they're in a difficult neighborhood. They're they're the the they made they're a rose that made the desert bloom, implying that Arabs that are there are just simply barbarians who cannot be reasoned with with anything other than violence and elimination. Um, and it's quite shocking to me that that's only become a realization for people now. Um, I definitely have felt in the past few weeks that I'm kind of living in a parallel reality to many others, which is, has been very alienating. Anyway, we have more on this story in a moment. But first, you may have noticed that we are currently running a fundraiser at the moment. Your choice to fund independent media is the reason we can bring you this show. So thank you. And we're looking for 5,000 more supporters. So if you want to support our journalism, then you can sign up from just one pound per month. The link to do so is navaramedia.com forward slash support. And that link is in the description below. Now back to Starmer. The press may be willing to excuse Keir Starmer's lack of moral leadership, but regular people are not. After his Chatham House speech, Starmer was met with protesters representing the Palestinian youth movement, Jewish peace groups and Labour members. A spokesperson for the coalition told Navarra Media this. As Starmer announced he is rejecting the UN and international humanitarian organisation calls for a ceasefire, we gathered to protest outside Chatham House. When he came out, we confronted him about his defence of Israeli war crimes and complicity in genocide in Gaza. Our message to Keir Starmer, David Lammy and other UK political leaders is simple. Wherever you go, we will follow asking how many more Palestinians you will allow to be killed before you finally support peace. Free Palestine. And here's footage captured from the moment that Starmer left the building. And yes, that was Navarra contributor Barnaby Rain. You saw joining calls for Keir Starmer to simply represent not only his party, but the country he one day hopes to govern. Right, next story. After delivering a speech clarifying his position on the war unfolding in Gaza, Starmer faced a question about whether or not Israel has to act in accordance with international law. And this was his reply. It has to act in accordance with international law. This is, this is not an optional extra and nice to have. It has to be in accordance with international law. Um, and that is a point that we have repeatedly pressed on Israel and other uh, countries have pressed on Israel. It has to act in accordance with the law. Um, as to whether each and every act is in accordance with the law, well, that will have to be adjudicated in due course. Um, I think it's unwise for politicians to stand 
on stages like this or to sit in television studios and pronounce day by day which acts may or may not be in accordance with international law. I think it's not the role of politicians. Uh, I don't think it's wise to do it. I come with the benefit of a lawyer of having litigated about issues like this in the past. And in my experience, it often takes weeks or months to assimilate the evidence um, and to then work out whether there may or may not have been a breach of international law. So um, I think the call for politicians to look at half a picture on the screen without the full information um, and form an instant judgment as to whether it's this side of the line or the other side of the line is extremely unwise. And I'm not going to get involved in that kind of exercise. Keir Starmer there holding a very clear line that it is not appropriate for politicians to call out war crimes as they happen. Instead, they should wait for the war crimes to finish and then adjudicate it in due course. Now, that's not always been Starmer's position. Here's a clip, and there always is a clip, of Starmer being asked the same question in March 2022 about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. With your lawyer's hat on, is Vladimir Putin a war criminal? Yes. Yes. What I've seen already amounts to war crimes, uh, particularly uh, the awful attacks on civilians. Um, and I think it's very important that he's held to account and is responsible. And all those that are acting with him know that they too will be held to account. And this is something which we need to make clear now um, so that those who are involved at the moment know what the consequences are. There's a gap that we've got to plug, and that is in relation to the aggression of the invasion. That is not something that at the moment can be dealt with by international tribunals, which is why I and others have suggested that we set up a tribunal uh, to deal with this, a bit like the Nuremberg Tribunal, so that the act of aggression itself, the aggressive invasion that's going on, is itself something for which Putin and everybody who is acting with him can be held to account for. There's not much more to add to that, is there? And for what it's worth, I agree with what he said in the Putin case. It's absolutely imperative when there is clearly a good case to be made that war crimes are taking place for the international community to mobilise to stop them. You don't wait until it's over, until the destruction has been wrought irreversibly to do something about it. And when the General Secretary of the UN comes out and says that Israel has clearly violated international humanitarian law, when we know that food, water, aid is being blocked from entering Gaza, that constitutes pretty clear grounds for intervention. Ash, it's increasingly clear that Keir Starmer doesn't hold principles. He holds lines. And in this instance, where are his lines coming from? That's not true, Dahlia. Uh, Kistama holds principles. He holds many, many, many principles, which means that if you don't like these principles, he always has others. So I think you're being very unfair on our dear leader there. Um, in terms of where's this particular line coming from, what explains it? I mean, first, you do have to talk about racism. I don't think that you would have this kind of hedging around the question of war crimes were Palestinians white. The fact that Palestinians are subject to anti-Arab racism, to Islamophobic racism, because of the particular way in which Israel interacts with European guilt over the Holocaust, I think that means that Palestinian lives are vastly devalued, right? It's like, okay, like 20 Palestinians, that equals one regular person. You know, maybe that's the going rate. And I don't think that you end up with that kind of devaluing of life without racism playing a part. 
But the second thing is that I think this demonstrates just what has happened in terms of international law and the way in which it's been cheapened. Because international law here is not meant to be some kind of universal framework to which every state is held accountable, whether they're considered in ordinary terms friend or foe. International law here is subject to the real politique of geopolitical interest. So international law, of course, it must apply to Russia. Of course, Russia must be held to the very highest standards. Let's get started on a Nuremberg Tribunal now. Why? Well, there are very good reasons to hold Russia accountable for war crimes. But also, it is geopolitically, strategically in the West's interest to weaken Russia. Why not hold Israel accountable to international law? Why not get a a tribunal going now, gathering the evidence now, making a call on war crimes now to stop there from being further attacks on civilians while this war is being waged? Well, we wouldn't want to do that. That would be kind of like mean to Israel and, you know kind of boys like that you know israel it's like mini america right slap bang in that difficult neighborhood of the middle east where we've pissed off so many people so just from a you know very basic uh geopolitical point of view neither the us nor its favorite cockapoo the uk would consider it in their interests to hold Israel to the same system of international law that we want to hold other states to, the states that strategically, for whatever reason, we want to weaken. Now, that is a very bad way to have international law being implemented or indeed understood. That is exactly what contributes to the breakdown of international law. And we've seen that over the last few weeks, one of the consequences of this sort of carte blanche being offered to Israel, in which international law gets a bit of lip service, but everybody knows that no one is serious about upholding it or making sure that anyone would be accountable for some of these war crimes which have been um, carried out in Gaza, and of course, as Amnesty have called out, it possibly in Lebanon as well. No one's actually serious about that. So you've got countries in the global south, which have been, you know, quite tentatively won round on the question of, you know, reducing trade uh, with Russia, contributing, you know, in some small way to the Ukrainian war effort, turning around and going, hey, wait a minute, you told us this was about upholding international law. Now, you've just given this state carte blanche to drop tower blocks on children and you're not going to do anything about it. Meanwhile, I've got to see my country's food and energy costs go up, not on your life. So it's a form of strategy, which ultimately I think is self-defeating for the West. But, you know, we didn't let that stop us during the war on terror. So why break the habit of a lifetime? On to our next story. Some of the most ardent opposition to Israel's assault on Gaza has come from Jewish people living in the West. In the US, we've seen groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now staging sit-ins in major train stations, marching on the homes and offices of senators and holding massive rallies at the Capitol. Following in their footsteps are Namud, an activist group of British left-wing Jews who oppose Israeli apartheid. This morning, they protested the Foreign Office over the UK's response to Israel's war on Gaza. 
Here, here's Emily Stevenson, one of the activists from Namud, who demonstrated today. We believe that it is our duty as British Jewish people who are opposed to Israeli occupation apartheid to call upon the Foreign Office to demand an immediate ceasefire um, and the end to the bombing campaign on Gaza. There were about 150 of us there this morning, including the former shadow chancellor, John McDonald. So we were singing things like ceasefire now, justice for all. And we were also chanting in Hebrew things like end the occupation, the people call for a ceasefire. And I think as well, most importantly, we were very much echoing the chants that you might have heard on the weekend saying things like Rishi Sunak, shame on you. Keir Starmer, shame on you. I'm not satisfied with the government's response. And I think that Ahmad more broadly is also not satisfied with the government's response because the collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza is a war crime. Um, and there is absolutely no justification for a war crime. The only humane thing for the UK government to do in this present moment is to call for a ceasefire. Every single day that goes past without a ceasefire, that's potentially hundreds of people who have died that wouldn't be dead if a ceasefire had been called. It, it feels like a complete moral failure from the government. I think it's incredibly cowardly from Labour, if I'm honest. Um, and I know that there are Labour MPs, uh, some of whom were at the protest today, who absolutely do not agree with Keir Starmer's line that we need to, you know, hold a ceasefire because, according to him, you know, Hamas will take it as an opportunity to break international law and commit war crimes in southern Israel again. And, and to that, I say... There really is no excuse for bombing civilians in Gaza. Um, I, I fail to see how a political party that is supposedly left wing and supposedly, you know, in favour of the rights and freedoms of people can justify what is pretty blatantly a huge violation of international law. So I'm, I'm very disappointed. I personally completely fail to see any scenario in which the bombing of civilian targets uh, is self-defense. And if someone asked me that about any international conflict over the last however many years, I would say the exact same thing. There is no excuse for the bombing of civilian targets. There is no excuse for the flattening of civilian infrastructure. Um, there's no excuse for the indiscriminate punishment and killing of Gazan civilians. It's not self-defense. There's no way it can even be construed as self-defense. Obviously, all states have a right to defend themselves, but that self-defense, as I think UN officials have stated, has to be proportionate. And this is in no way even vaguely proportionate. So in the short term, Naamo's demands uh, are a complete ceasefire, um, an end to the siege on Gaza, and the total unconditional release of hostages. And we take the line uh, that is being uh, currently put forward by the family of hostages, which is that there should be a complete prisoner exchange on both sides. We want to see a future in which everyone who lives in the region that is today called Israel-Palestine, um, so that is from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, can live peacefully, safely, and with complete equal rights under the law. That was Emily Stevenson from Naamod. And there's a little bit of breaking news. There's been some more action that's taken place whilst we've been on air. Sisters Uncut have conducted a sit-in at Liverpool Street Station tonight. They said hundreds of commuters joined them in calling for an end to the siege on Gaza. 
a ceasefire and an end to the occupation. So, on to our final story. This was Barnard Castle last night. Projected onto the historic County Durham landmark was the figure 231,332. It's the number of people in Britain who died of COVID during the pandemic. Barnard Castle is, of course, where Dominic Cummings travelled to in the spring of 2020 during the first COVID lockdown, despite having symptoms of COVID. The former advisor has now begun giving evidence to the second phase of the COVID-19 inquiry, where it's looking at government decision-making during the pandemic. Cummings was Boris Johnson's advisor at the time, and this was his assessment of the former PM. What are poppins? Poppins are uh, what was ref- what people in private office referred to when the prime minister would make a decision about something. Some element of the system, uh, uh, often in the cabinet office, would not like what had been agreed. And in the best Sir Humphrey uh, Yesminster style, um, they would wait for uh, me and other people to not be around the prime minister. And they would pop in to see the prime minister and say, dear prime minister, I think that this decision really wasn't the best idea. Very brave prime minister. Perhaps you should uh, um, uh, uh, trolley on it. And this was uh, a general problem. You should trolley on it. Meaning? Well, I'm sort of using the sort of generic term that we often used about the PM. The term you used and his cabinet secretary used and his director of communications used and other officials, no doubt, about his propensity to... Pretty much everyone called him the trolley, yeah. ...change direction. It wasn't just Johnson that Cummings had no time for. Here's what he thought about ministers. Due in large part to your own WhatsApps, Mr Cummings, we're going to have to coarsen our language somewhat. I apologise. You called ministers useless pigs, morons, in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the Cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly. Slow down, please, Mr Cummings. Are you suggesting that your views expressed in those revolting ways were shared by others? Well, my appalling language is obviously my own but uh, my judgment of a lot of senior people was widespread. Do you feel that you expressed your views too trenchantly, that your opinion of ministers and of the cabinet overstated (coughs) the position? No, I would say, if anything, it understated the position. Pig, surely that should refer to a different Tory prime minister. Those who know, know. So, also giving testimony today was Boris Johnson's spin doctor-in-chief during the first lockdown, Lee Kane, who took a similar view to Cummings when it came to the Prime Minister. There are a series of four messages from Dominic Cummings to you, and I think it's apparent that Mr Cummings is in a a meeting uh, with Boris Johnson and and Rishi Sunak, uh, and he says, first of all, get in here, he's melting down. Uh, Before I go on, let's just note the date. So, it's the 19th of March. Um, so the, the 
the Thursday of the week after that Saturday meeting that we were just discussing. Um, then he says, Rishi says, saying bond markets may not fund our debt, etc. He's back to Jaws mode, wank. What does he mean by that? The, P the PM at the time would refer to the, um, the mayor of Jaws from the, from the film who wanted to keep the beaches open. Um, I think he had, a, he had a routine from previous in his career where he would use that as a joke from one of his um, sort of after-dinner speeches. But he sort of said, you know, there's more harm coming. The mayor was right all along um, to keep the beaches open because it would have been a long-term harm to the community. So it's a sort of reference to that. And then Mr. Cumming says, I've literally said the same thing 10 fucking times. He still won't absorb it. I'm exhausted just talking to him and stopping the trolley. I've had to sit here for two hours just to stop him saying stupid shit. And you say, I'm exhausted with him. It, there's then a gap for an hour. It may be that there was then a press conference mm. because you then forward a tweet about someone who, who perhaps was watching that press conference saying that they, they were confused by what Boris Johnson has said at it. And you say, as your message, no words. And then Mr Cummings says, what did I say? It's only a matter of time before his babbling exposes fact he doesn't know what to say. Now, the first thing to, to ask you, Mr Kane, I mean, I think it's apparent from what you've already said that, that Dominic Cummings was someone you'd worked with for some time. You clearly had a close relationship with him. Um, was this just chatter? Was this just banter, if you like? Were you just agreeing with him because he was your friend? Or did you actually mean that you were exhausted with the Prime Minister and that you were despairing, if you like, of <coughs> what he was doing and saying? I think anyone that's worked with the Prime Minister for a period of time will become exhausted with him sometimes. He um, can be quite a challenging character to work with just because he will oscillate, he will take a decision from the last person in the room. I think, you know, that's pretty well documented um, in terms of his style of operating and it is rather exhausting from time to time. So the overall picture so far is of a government in chaos as the pandemic hit, underprepared, uninterested and unserious. But one of the most shocking disclosures in the evidence was about Johnson's attitude to older people. This is Inquiry Counsel Andrew O'Connor presenting Lee Kane with a piece of telling evidence. This is a, a, a text or WhatsApp um, between you and uh, sorry, between you and the Prime Minister. Uh, on the, we'll see the fifteenth of October. Um, he says, "I must say I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities." The median age is 82 to 81 for men, 85 for women. That's above life expectancy, so get COVID and live longer. Hardly anyone under 60 goes into hospital. I no longer buy all this NHS overwhelmed stuff. Folks, I think we may need to recalibrate. And you say, all understood. But how does this change the policy, still not politically viable, to change course? He says it shows we don't go for nationwide lockdown. That's how dispensable Johnson seemed to think the elderly were during the pandemic. But it wasn't the only piece of evidence put to Kane. O'Connor turned next to extracts from the diary of Patrick Valance, the chief scientific advisor to the government at the time. 
So this was a little bit earlier in August, where Patrick Balance has recorded that the PM WhatsApp group kicks off um, because of some, because the PM had read about the uh, infection fatality rate. Um, and it says this, he's obsessed with older people accepting their fate and letting the young get on with life and the economy going. Quite a bonkers set of exchanges. If we can look at page 308, please. Uh, on a similar theme, um, picking it up a couple of lines down, PM says, his party thinks the whole thing is pathetic and COVID is just nature's way of dealing with old people. And I'm not entirely sure I disagree with them. A lot of moderate people think it's a bit too much. And lastly, please, page 312. By this time we're in December. <coughs> we see the, the chief whip says, I think we should let the old people get it and protect others. PM says, a lot of my backbenchers think that, and I must say, I agree with them. Now, the theme in those notes is similar, is it not, to that WhatsApp we looked at between you and the Prime Minister. It's not saying that the economy is the main argument. It's related, but it's different. It's saying, look, it's only old people um, who get this disease. Why don't we just let them get it so the young people can live their lives? Is that something which you think uh, influenced the Prime Minister um, during this period? I think, you know, you could see from from the evidence that he was, you know, look, I think he was concerned about the damage on society as a whole. And he was trying to view it through that lens. I think some of the language is obviously um, not what I would have used. But for, for me, the core argument was always the same, which was your choice is that we lock down and control the virus and we do so as quick as possible to minimise cost to health and cost to the economy at the same time. The only reason you can start having any of these conversations is if you have no intention of bringing in further suppression measures, which for me was always morally and politically you know, a non-starter. It was never something any responsible government or any responsible prime minister could or would undertake. Ash, what were you more offended by there? Johnson's clear disregard for the elderly or Cummings calling ministers fuckpigs? I really enjoyed the use of the term fuckpig. Um, I thought it demonstrated some quite creative use of swearing. A fuckpig is inherently undignified. It's sort of just there, porkily, waiting to be um, great insult, 10 out of 10, probably had Armando Iannucci racing to fire up the Google Doc. Um, as for the insight that these messages give us into Boris Johnson, I mean, look, if we didn't have one of the worst death rates uh, in, in the Western world, because of our handling of COVID, I don't think any of us would would look at that sort of real-time insight into the ways in which the Prime Minister was making sense of the virus and said that it indicated very much. It's meaningful because of how demonstrably awful our handling of the pandemic was before the vaccines were rolled out. And I think that this attitude, where we're not talking about how to balance different costs, 
the costs of locking down versus not locking down, the different groups of people who are impacted by different courses of action. What we're seeing, particularly with that comment about nature's way of dealing with old people, is that it wasn't a judgment based on harm and who that harm was being done to. It was a judgment based on the inerrant worthiness of other people's lives. And I think that that's something which you see throughout Boris Johnson's career and also his personal conduct. I think this is who he is as a man. He's someone who has an astonishing lack of empathy for those around him. I think that he's someone who absolutely despises weakness in other people and indulges it within himself. And I think that that's a product of his upbringing. I interviewed the author of Sad Little Men, who went to British boarding schools around the same time as the likes of Boris Johnson, David Cameron and George Osborne. And he talked about the way in which those institutions instilled many of the pupils there with this attitude of blasé-ness towards the thoughts, the feelings and the worthiness of other people, particularly if those people weren't from the same class background. So when you're, when you're dealing with COVID, where of course COVID disproportionately harmed people who were already vulnerable in some way, So they were clinically vulnerable in some way. They were vulnerable because of their age. They were vulnerable because their class position or their occupations put them in contact with lots of other people who may be carrying the virus. That would mean that if you're going to be good at handling that kind of crisis, you would begin from a position of empathy. You wouldn't start from a position of disdain towards those who were vulnerable in the first place. And I think that that's exactly what Boris Johnson was built for in the institutions that produced him. Yeah, it always um, struck me. I remember when Johnson himself got COVID and got it really, really badly, had to be hospitalized. People were making these people that kind of knew him said Johnson really believes in this idea of like mind over matter and like, is very uncomfortable with being unwell or being seen to be incapacitated in any way um, because he believes that, you know, his mental strength is, you know, he's mentally strong enough to overcome any kind of physical ailment. And I'm just like, this is such a delusional way of existing in the world. It's so alien to me. And I guess it's because I didn't go to one of those schools where they teach you to spend your time hierarchizing human life and deciding who you're willing to get rid of in order to, you know, make your path to power clearer. But yeah, it's just, there's things like that where you get the, you know, you want to focus on the kind of structural elements that get us here. But then there is also just something to be said about the just kind of individual dispositions and the cultural perspectives that so many people in power have and how they feel so fundamentally alien to us. And it's because, you know, we weren't reared to be psycho. Paths. Right, some good news for you now before we finish. The government has U turned on plans to scrap ticket offices in rail stations across England. The decision follows campaigning by unions and disability groups, as well as three quarters of a million negative responses from passengers and organizations. The BBC reports that rail bosses are, quote, furious with the decision. We love to see it, and it shows you organizing works. Um, Right. Thank you so much, Ash, for joining me. That was a tour de force. We've been here for an hour and 20 minutes. My God, are you okay? 
It absolutely flew by. And you know what? It stopped me from having to open the door to children demanding <laughs> I give them sweets paid for with my hard-earned cash. That taxpayer's money. Anyway, thank you all for watching, for tuning in. This show will be back again tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.